Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's no surprise that if you're in rural Idaho and get hurt, it may take a while for first responders to get you to a hospital. But some EMS directors say Idaho's policies on funding emergency medical services are making it even more difficult for them to help Idahoans. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, we explore funding for emergency medical services in rural Idaho and what policy changes might help those communities. Then, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Kay Thornborough of the Coeur d'Alene Press discuss the recent heated trustee elections at the College of Western Idaho and North Idaho College and what the race's outcomes mean for Idaho's students. We'll also discuss the horrific events at University of Idaho and what role a university has when students are victims of crimes that happen off campus. But first, the Idaho Department of Correction issued a death warrant on Wednesday to Gerald Pizzuto Jr., despite the state not having the chemicals necessary to carry out the execution. The Department of Correction scheduled the execution for December 15th. Pizzuto was convicted for the 1985 deaths of Berta Herndon and her nephew Delbert Herndon outside of McCall. Last year, Governor Brad Little denied a recommendation from the Idaho Commission of Pardons and Parole that would have reduced that death sentence to life in prison without parole for Pizzuto, who has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Idaho Reports will continue to follow this story on air and online. Also online this week, producer Ruth Brown talks to Lee Flynn, director of the Idaho Crisis and Suicide Hotline, about the successes of the new 988 Crisis Line, as well as the challenges facing the program. You can find all of those links at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. Most of us agree that one of the best parts about Idaho is its gorgeous, wide open spaces. But there's a risk for those of us who live or play outside of the metropolitan areas. If you get injured, it may take a while for help to reach you. That's no surprise, but that wait may be longer than you expect. In 2021, the Office of Performance Evaluations published a report on emergency medical services in rural Idaho, highlighting funding and staffing challenges and pointing out that about seven out of 10 emergency medical workers are volunteers. The EMS Sustainability Task Force plans to work with lawmakers in the coming legislative session regarding the issue. In the lead up to those tentative discussions, producer Ruth Brown spent time this summer visiting parts of Idaho where EMS directors say they're struggling with inadequate funding. Whether it's a heart attack, an injury, or a woman in labor, access to emergency medical service transport in Idaho is not a guarantee. Idaho law does not designate EMS as an essential service, and funding for the service varies widely county by county. A report from the Office of Performance Evaluations released in 2021 presented stark issues, particularly in the areas that rely on volunteers. As the economy changes in McCall and people are busier with their own lives and professional jobs, they have less time to give to the fire district. I think every agency in rural Idaho has the same sufferings that we do for uh, staffing, recruitment and retention is crazy hard, especially in these volunteer agencies. We're asking these people to leave their job to come help us on a call 
and, and it could be a critical call where you're expected to do adequate chest compressions and maintain an open airway all the way to the hospital while leaving your place of employment that feeds your family. Up in Idaho County, the area is geographically challenging, even if it isn't the most densely populated. Kamii, for example, has a large area it needs to cover for EMS services. It's a, it's a time killer, essentially. Uh, you know, on our worst winter days, our calls might take an average of about two and a half to three hours. Uh, one area that we cover takes us about 40 minutes to get to, has a number of residents living in that area, and then to get to the hospital is another 30 to 40 minutes, so you're looking at almost an hour and a half. The shortage of available staff also puts stress on having two EMTs in one ambulance. I know of an area uh, that recently had a call where they didn't have enough EMTs to go on the call, so they grabbed the city maintenance worker to drive the ambulance, and then the EMT took care of it. A year and a half ago, when I got here, we were in that same boat. I actually grabbed the city clerk to drive the ambulance to the call uh, so we could handle the call, and then I took care of the patient in the back. That puts a lot of pressure on those folks who normally don't do that. The availability of an EMT in Idaho often comes down to money. McCall does have a fire district used to collect a tax on top of its contract with Valley County for providing EMS. Some of that tax revenue is used for EMS services. We receive about $165,000 in transport revenue to provide EMS. The total cost of providing one ambulance 24-7 costs about $1.2 million. State revenue for EMS is minimal. Valley County receives funding from license plate registrations. The population in Valley County is about 11,000. Um, on average, the county collects about just a little over $100 a year from vehicle registration fees for EMS. Because many homes in McCall are second homes for recreationists, those residents don't often register their vehicles in Valley County. Therefore, DeYoung's crew doesn't see the profits of their fees. The city of Riggins, in May of 2022, approved an ambulance district garnering 73% of voter support. Until then, local volunteer EMS received no government funding for its services. Meanwhile, Riggins EMS only receives funding for reimbursement from patient billing, including Medicaid, Medicare, and private insurance. There's an Idaho code that says we cannot petition to levy property the same year as the election was held. So we're not gonna be able to receive revenue from the ambulance district until January of 2024. Further north, some leaders are not confident that another taxing district could be established by voters in the area. We receive no major government funding. Uh, we do not have an ambulance taxing district. We don't have an ambulance district. The only funding Kamii Fire Rescue receives for its ambulance services is from our transports. And that is a situation that's hard in general, just because of the Medicaid and Medicare reimbursement fees. We receive very, very small amount of the total cost of that operational response. When we tie in Medicaid, in the nutshell, we receive pennies on the dollars to support the full-time staff, to support the volunteers. The possibility of not receiving additional funding is frustrating to some responders. I once heard an elected official say, when you come to my county, you have to expect your house probably burned to the ground before the fire department gets there, and you shouldn't expect to be taken to the hospital in a timely manner. 
I disagree with that statement. Absolutely 100% disagree with it. And it's not because I've, I'm in this role, it's because as public servants, we want to help people. And even the elected official who made those comments should want to help his or her constituents have survivability of life. Rural areas also face challenges with recreators. While thousands may visit the area, those people don't contribute to the property taxes that help pay for emergency medical services. If you compared us to a county with 11,000 that is not a tourist area, that we, I, I would guesstimate that we run about 75% more calls than those counties. Riggins EMS is definitely a unique agency in the state of Idaho because of our destination, our vacation destination, people coming to Riggins. For instance, when you go to the grocery store on the weekend, you can't even recognize <laughs> who you're shopping with just because they're all out of towners. Uh, and then also our steep mountains, as you can see, are it's like this all around us. So our geographical location is, is a lot more unique than other locations. For many rural areas, such as Riggins, there is no local hospital, and transporting patients can be one of the biggest problems. So we have 45 minutes of lights on on the highway with cars needing to pull over. So it's, it's a nerve-wracking job with them in the front, just making sure that we're getting to the hospital safe with our amount of traffic. We only have one highway through Riggins. I feel like Idaho EMS and fire is already underfunded and the, the state legislature just seems intent every year to cut funding even more. And we're at a point where, you know, with the House Bill 389 and the cap on levy rates with annexation, not increasing your ability to collect, collect taxes makes it impossible mathematically for us to save for a second station and it delays hiring full-time firefighters by firefighter EMTs by three to five years. There is an EMS sustainability task force with invested stakeholders who will continue to meet and plan to propose a resolution during the next legislative session. If it passes, the task force will continue to plan and request that EMS be deemed an essential service during the 2024 legislative session and develop a funding formula for the state. Idaho Reports will continue to follow this story over the next legislative session. The incoming legislature will also have to decide what to do with the more than $400 million set aside for education during the September special session. That includes $330 million for K-12 public schools and $80 million for an in-demand careers fund. While that money is earmarked for those broad purposes, it's up to the 2023 legislature to hammer out the specifics. And already stakeholders are proposing ideas. Our partners at the University of Idaho School of Journalism and Mass Media, as well as K UID in Moscow recently sat down with Tanner McLean, president of the Associated Students of the University of Idaho, to get his take. Since over the summer, I've been working with other student body presidents across the state and bringing about a legislative funded merit based scholarship. The idea behind the scholarship is to reduce brain drain in the state of Idaho. We're seeking to um, request funding for students who graduate with 3.9 to 4.0 GPA will be given a $4,000 scholarship per semester in their time at college or any other university in the, in the state of Idaho. Right now, Idaho has a 37% go-on rate. Uh, we're the 50th in the nation for going on to secondary education, and there needs to be some sort of um, resolve to that issue. And we believe that cost is a major impediment to students going on to secondary education. This scholarship will help alleviate that. One third of students who graduate with 3.9 or 4.0 GPA 
don't go on to college in the state of Idaho. This is, these, these are numbers from the State Board of Education from the year from last year. One, another third of students who graduate with 3.9 4.0 leave the state. So the idea behind the scholarship and the purpose by you know, bringing this forward is to reduce that brain drain from just one third of students who leave the state and to you know, support the students who, who graduate with 3.940 to, uh, to go on to secondary education in the state of Idaho. So last year, um, this number is provided by the State Board of Education, 21,000 students graduated with 3.9 to 4.0 GPA in the state. If you look at that number, this would cost about $8 million to fund um, for 21,000 of these students get receiving a $4,000 scholarship per semester. So this, these 21, this population of 21,000 students, um, if we're able to keep you know, a third of them in the state and provide finances for a third of those to actually go on to college, I think it will really be a great investment in uh, Idaho's education and in uh, Idaho's uh, workforce and in uh, Idaho's future. Really, I'm advocating for this as much as I can, and I know that um, you know the fellow, my fellow student body presidents from Boise State, Lewis and Clark State College, and others are doing the best they can to to advocate for the scholarship as well. I know Adam Jones at Boise State has talked to uh, you know vast amount of state legislators already. We have a lot of bright students in high school. These 21,000 students who have a 3940 um, should have the opportunity to go on to college, to go on to secondary education, um, and that you know Idaho is really losing a lot of talent to um, outside schools, to these students not going on to education at all, and that you know the scholarship is an investment. We have an update on the numbers McLean provided as the pandemic changed the landscape even more. According to the State Board of Education in 2021, 45% of students with a 3.9 GPA or higher did not enroll in college and 18% went out of state. Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Kay Thornborough of the Coeur d'Alene Press join us today to discuss higher education updates. But first, I want to discuss the tragedy at University of Idaho, where four students were murdered in an off-campus home. Kay, three of those students were from Kootenai County or had strong ties there. Can you tell us uh, how your community is doing? It's been a somber week here in Coeur d'Alene and in Kootenai County. Um, a lot of grief from both classmates, uh, family members, friends, neighbors, uh, former teachers of those three students. A candlelight vigil earlier this week was very well attended. Uh, a few hundred folks showed up uh, to, to share their memories, to come together in this time of grief. Um, it's, it's been tough. Kevin, you spoke to a number of parents who have mm -hmm. students at the University of Idaho. What are you hearing? What we're hearing from the parents is a lot like what we're hearing from the community at large, what we're hearing from the, the victims' families, what we're hearing from students, what we're hearing from the, the greater community. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of, lot of uncertainty. I, I had a number of parents reach out to me this week, and it's a small sample and it's a self-selecting sample because these are parents who reached out. So it stands to reason that they're reaching out with concerns, and their biggest concern really is the lack of information that has been released so far this week. And that really hit home on Wednesday as we watched that news conference Wednesday afternoon. It was such a widely watched news conference. I, mean, I was watching it over the U of I's YouTube channel and there were more than 7,000 people logged on there. I was stunned at those numbers and you have to realize it was being streamed across uh, several other platforms and it was being live, uh, live aired uh, by a number of broadcast outfits. 
anyway, after that news conference and the big talking point that we heard where police kind of walked back the idea that there's no threat to the community, I immediately heard from a couple of the parents that I've been talking to during the week, both saying that they were disappointed, one saying, I'm so glad my daughter is home now. And that lines up with what I'm hearing, not only from mm -hmm. families who have students at University of Idaho, but also residents of the community who are concerned as well, even if they don't work there or have students who go there. It, Clearly, you know, this this is a crime. It occurred off campus, um, but it did involve University of Idaho students. There's been so much frustration with the communication coming from the Moscow Police Department, um, and now on some level, Idaho State Police, with families who are looking for answers. Right. What is a university's responsibility when something happens to their students off campus? Well, their role is somewhat limited at this point. Their role is definitely limited in the investigation because this investigation is being headed by the local police and the state police because it's an off-campus crime. And that would probably even be the case if this had been a crime on campus. I talked to a national consultant about that saying, a crime of this magnitude would be investigated by the police anyway because campus police don't usually have the, the forensics capability, the lab capability to take on a case like this. So, yeah. It kind of puts the university in a really difficult situation because they're not in charge of the investigation. They may or may not know more about the case than the general public knows. That's impossible to tell at this point. And their messaging is kind of tied up in the messaging that comes from the law enforcement community. But for students, for parents, for the community, they're not differentiating, and nor should they. They, they just want answers. And, and then really, uh, differentiate too much about who's giving them the answers. They're, they're in the dark and they want uh, a better idea of how safe are, are we in Moscow. And, and I know that there was a lot of criticism over whether or not the university should continue to hold classes in person this week, you know, whether there should have been a, a stay in place or shelter in place uh, alert that lasted longer. Um, Difficult situation for everybody right. involved. And, and tellingly, one of the things that I thought was really important from the news conference on Wednesday, you had uh, C. Scott Green, the president of the University of Idaho, he talked about the decision to resume classes, make it optional, and he said that, that was based on the expertise, was his exact word, the expertise of the Moscow Police Department. And that came in the middle of a news conference that really, I think, raised more questions for a lot of people than answered questions about the, the police investigation to date. I found that really telling, really significant. Yeah. But in, and to be clear, most of the criticism or concern has been directed at the Moscow PD, less so at University of Idaho. You can tell that this was very difficult for that campus community. Yes, but, exactly. Well, uh, our, we have a lot of vandals here at Idaho Public Television. Yeah. Um, we'll continue to hold those families and everyone affected um, in our thoughts and prayers. I. I do want to turn to the college, the community college trustee elections from this last general election. Um, we had contentious races at both North Idaho College and College of Western Idaho here in Southern Idaho. Uh, rarely do these races generate so many headlines. They're usually under the radar. Kay, you had, you covered, um, the North Idaho College trustee elections. What were the talking points of those races? These, the, the races for three open seats on the North Idaho College Board of Trustees uh, can really be viewed as two separate slates of candidates uh, backed by alternately the 
Kootenai County Republican Central Committee and a new PAC called the Friends of NIC. Now, on one side, you have the Friends of NIC who ran on and campaigned very strongly uh, on a platform of protecting and preserving NIC's accreditation, a return to normalcy, a return to stability at the college. On the flip side, you have the Central Committee's slate who campaigned very strongly on both the notion that there is no risk to the college's accreditation, um, that everything is fine and normal on that front, um, also with a lot of emphasis on a new board um, putting in place policies to address uh, what they refer to as indoctrination um, or ideological problems on the campus. And this comes after a tumultuous past year where the board was at odds with each other and the firing of NIC's president. Yeah, ultimately, who won? Was it the slate of candidates who were backed by the Kootenai County Republican Central Committee, or was it the slate that was backed by this group who was trying to promote the idea of stability? Ultimately, the results can be seen as mixed, uh, but at the end of the day, it was a victory for the Central Committee. They already had two candidates um, who they previously supported on the Board of Trustees, and so they really only needed one win to regain control of the board, which is what they got in the race for District 5, uh, where their candidate, Mike Wagoner, was successful. Kevin, turning to College of Western Idaho, what were the talking points in those races? You know, it's very similar to what Kay is talking about at North Idaho College in the sense that it seemed like he had two slates of candidates talking about two different colleges. You know, the incumbents and a newcomer who was aligned with the incumbents, they were talking about kind of meat and potatoes, college, uh, college issues, community college issues, affordability, trying to keep uh, tuition frozen as it's been for the past seven years, to try to keep tax rates low, uh, talking about partnering with business, expanding and building campuses uh, both in Nampa and Boise. You had the slate of candidates aligning themselves with the Republicans, uh, billing themselves as a Republican ticket, talking about uh, agenda-based education. They talked about uh, a, a, a CWI student club's participation in pride, uh, conflating that into the College of Western Idaho being involved in a Boise Pride event. They talked about they talked about property taxes in the sense of we could reduce property taxes. The incumbents were saying, well, wait a minute, you know, the College of Western Idaho's tax levy is the lowest of the four community colleges. If you make it lower, that money's got to come from somewhere. It could uh, result in tuition increases. So you had two very different views of what's important at CWI, what's important going forward. And, and to be clear, in both of these cases, these are nonpartisan positions Correct. on the surface. Correct. Yeah, CWI candidates, that slate of incumbents, and the newcomer who was aligned with them ultimately won. Um, but a lot of money was spent on these campaigns. Kay, can you give us an idea of who was contributing uh, to the dialogue up in Kootenai County? Sure. As mentioned previously, this contest was really defined um, between these two groups, these two PACs, the Central Committee and the Friends of NIC. There, we saw a very unusual amount of money poured into this race, particularly by the Friends of NIC, who collected close to $150,000 in donations between uh, July and November and spent close to 110,000 of that, uh, mostly on advertising billboards yard signs, you name it. Um, 
this resulted in an unusually competitive race, at least locally, um, in the most recent election cycles. The Kootenai County Republican Central Committee has really financially dominated these races, um, and their candidates tend to perform very well, if for no other reason than that they have the resources to blanket the county in their literature and to support their candidates in that way. So we did see much tighter races than I think a lot of people were used to. Sure, absolutely, and we we know that there was a lot of money spent in southern Idaho as well on those CWI races. Right, there was an organization called Idaho's Future PAC. They formed on October 21st, so only a couple of weeks before the election. As of this morning, they've reported $98,000 in contributions, and you know, Sunshine Reports, there's a lag in Sunshine Reports, so we don't know the exact number, but that's a big amount of money in a race, and you gotta remember how these races are run. These are candidates running in a down ticket race. They don't tend to raise a lot of money on their own. So third party donations are hugely important in these kind of races. And College of Western Idaho trustees run across all of Ada and Canyon counties. I mean, that's a huge geographic spread and a lot of voters that they have to try to reach out to. So the money that came in late had to be a fairly significant factor in the outcome. Kay, at the end of the day, any idea how the outcome of this race is going to affect NIC students? It's difficult to say at this point, we are definitely going to be seeing a, a political or even an ideological shift on the board beginning November 30th, where we're gonna have the first meeting with the, the full board of trustees. Um, everybody is keeping an eye out on these meetings and we're really gonna be looking ahead to the spring when we have more information from the college's accreditation organization um, and we'll have an idea of how that situation is going and if the college has made sufficient progress. Any idea what this new board might be specifically trying to target or change when it comes to um, NIC's curriculum? Well, as we discussed a bit previously, um, a lot of the campaign centered on ideas of indoctrination um, or ideological matters on campus, um, ideas that perhaps students are being taught certain ideals, that certain uh, political agendas are being either uh, encouraged or discouraged in the classroom. So there is a possibility that we may see this new board uh, put in some policies that are meant to shape or to limit uh, certain ideas, ideologies, uh, political ideas on campus and in the classrooms at NIC. You know, Kevin, we have a little more than a minute left, but can we expect moving forward that this is gonna be the new normal when it comes to not only trustee races, but also school board races and library boards? I think so, and I think we're already seeing evidence of that. I mean, what happened at NIC this last round of elections, it's the second round of those kind of contentious NIC board elections. At CWI, you're gonna have three trustee seats on the ballot in 2024. So this is only a two-year window with this current slate of trustees. And, and we've seen this in school board elections, which are, again, nonpartisan races, but you've seen a lot more of a partisan overtone in local school board races another round of those next November in the off year. I would expect that, yes, this is the way elections are going to go at the education, at the trustee level, both you know, school boards and college uh, trustees. Very briefly, any indication that we're gonna see the same thing at Eastern Idaho College or CSI? 
My understanding is that there was one candidate, one contested race at the College of Eastern Idaho. I have not followed that race terribly closely, but uh, again, if it's happening at two of the community colleges, stands a reason we may see similar politics play out elsewhere in the state. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for watching. We're off next week, but we will be back that first week of December, and we'll see you then. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.